1: Of out of the blank podcast, I'm here with Doctor Andrew Huff. Thanks so much for joining me on my show. And please, for everyone out there listening who might not know who you are, do you want to introduce yourself?
0: Sure, uh, real quickly. So I, I sort of categorize myself as a guy that solves complex problems uh, efficiently and easily. But in what space? Uh, primarily biological. Uh, I've worked in bioterrorism, biodefense defense. Um, I was a former executive at Equal Health Alliance. I was the vice president for data and technology, and worked on a wide Variety of programs. I wrote a a recently written a book, or it's in the process. I'm almost done uh, about the the truth of what happened in Wuhan, Um, and it's related to this craziness that we're in. With where did where did COVID come from?
1: Now, when it comes to your book and it comes to the truth about Wuhan, a lot of people hearing that go, "This person's going to believe the theory about it came from a lab." And I've stood from the beginning with Jamie Metzl and all the people that have trying to be trying to been, I guess, getting transparency on the issue that it could have came from this lab and it probably did come from this lab. But it's been the literally shunned by every network, every newspaper. Just like I was telling you off air, the New York Post put up an article saying there's prime evidence it came out of. Uh, the market. There's just been a lot of issues. And I'm like, are we ever going to find the COVID origin? I've talked to people in the NIH. I've talked to people on the opposite side. They all say you're never really going to just give up on trying to find the origin of it. I don't want to necessarily side with them on that where it comes to just give up on the origin I think we have the evidence clear it's just about whether they're releasing that information on it as well too and then after the intercept doing so much work trying to release a bunch of documents doing a lot of talks about this you see emails back and forth and Peter Daszak's involved in it and I don't know where you could take me through when did you start figuring out something was
0: going wrong and you had to leave um just give me your story man. Well, that's, that's a lot of ground uh, to cover, and I'm not sure where to start. Um, so I worked at eco Alliance from October 2014 until the summer of 2016. I was actually hired as a senior scientist. I performed well. I brought in million do- millions of dollars of grants uh, through the Defense Threat Reduction Agency and actually contributed to many of the different proposals or edited those proposals to ensure the organization's success. Uh, through that, I was promoted up to uh, vice president, and once I became vice president, I got to see more of what was going on under the hood at EcoHealth, and I really didn't like the things that I was seeing. Um, it went from unethical business practices, sort of uh, talking out of both sides of your mouth to, to different stakeholders, whether those be wealthy donors, to the federal government, um, to a number of different issues. And I'm a very straight shooter, and I, I believe in, in doing uh, performing science ethically and, and sort of, you know, where the, letting the chips fall where they may, so to speak. And that was definitely not the type of behavior um, that I was witnessing while working at EcoHealth. Um, So much to to the point where I started becoming increasingly outspoken about this, and I actually made a plan to leave the organization. Um, In January of uh, 2016, I started looking for other work, and I landed a professorship rather quickly. Um, And during that, that period where I knew I had new employment coming, and um, I was getting ready to leave the organization. It became increasingly vocal uh, to the point where Peter and Dasik and I actually had a huge blow up in his office. Um, and then it left to me leaving the organization. He was actually trying to force me out. And um, we got into this really terrible uh, fight, actually. Um, but we negotiated an exit where I would hand and turn over my contracts, um, my grants in, a would say, a, an effective way to the next person who'd be taking over. And then I'd leave the organization. Um, I think he was sort of worried that I would take all those contracts with me when I left. So I had a, a, a strong hand to negotiate with.
1: What was the straw that made you really kind of like snap and just want to leave? Like, I mean, everyone has these moments at work where they walk out or when they might speak out about a couple of things, but what was the point where you were just like, I have to go like, this is not what I thought it was. Everything's gone too far and I can't really do anything to stop it.
0: Yeah, there were two points. Uh, the first one actually happened uh, shortly after I was promoted to vice president. So I sat in my first fiscal or financial meeting, and we're going through all the books, a weekly kind of meeting, talking about finances, pretty dry stuff. And uh, Equal Health was in a state of financial distress meaning um, We depended on a uh, very tight cash flow to keep things operational. Otherwise, we'd have to lay people off. And that was always a concern that we'd have to lay personnel off with the, the, the ebb and flow of cash into the organization. Um, but through that, one of the questions I had it was, "Well, how much money are we donating to conversa- uh, uh, conservation?" And at the time, Eco Alliance and Peter really pushed this mission that you know, if we're protecting wildlife, we can prevent uh, viral, viral spillover, viral, viral emergence, and by doing conservation work, we can prevent those bad things from happening. Well, there's a lot of face validity to that because that's one of the, the big arguments of uh, emerging infectious diseases is that if you can eliminate the destruction of natural environments or eliminate the contact of humans going into those pristine environments and then being exposed to animals which have not nasty bugs, you can prevent them from emerging. Well, I, le- I learned that actually EcoHealth Alliance wasn't spending any money on conservation. And this was just merely a ploy to get people to invest or to donate money to the organization. And I was pretty pissed off about it, and every time you know, he would repeat this in, in various talks to stakeholders, we'd be in Washington, D.C. meeting with uh, a variety of important people, and I'd hear him you know utter those words. I, I, it made me upset because it's something I actually believe in, um, so that was the first thing, and the second thing was uh, moving forward was that um, I was actually arguing for a pay raise uh, for a number of the employees at the or- organization. Um, myself included. But um, I came to the conclusion that we were drastically underpaying these employees uh, based on the cost of living in New York City. And you could look at comparable pay pay rates for for the occupation that they had and for the location. And we were paying our employees much lower uh, than the market rate. And uh, I got a lot of pushback from that. And I had one of those moments where um, you know, I sort of exploded in anger and started talking about all the different quasi fraud things uh, going on in the organization. And that was really the point where, by that point, I'd already secured the new job. I could lay, you know, lay my chips on the table, lay my cards on the table, and, um, you know, tell it like it is. And that was sort of the beginning of the end.
1: And what led to the book? Like how did were you involved in any of the Wuhan stuff that was going on or any of their research over there? Because didn't they get like five hundred thousand dollars that we were
0: funding or something? Was it five hundred thousand or was it way more than that? well, the, the money so ECO, let's talk about the funding at eco Alliance and how that works. So they receive funding from a number of organizations. Uh, one, they receive funding from the u s. government in the form of contracts or grants. Okay, so that's typically for specific projects over a course of usually you know, one to five years, sometimes longer, than they get extended. That's one, one, one way that Equal Health receives uh, funding. Sometimes they receive money for projects or contracts from organizations or non-government organizations. So that could be the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the Skoll Foundation, the Welcome Trust. A lot of these big famous organizations either donated to the organization or signed up for special contracts or projects, which might be in their organization's interest, the findings. So that's another way. And the last way is through wealthy donors. So there were a number of um, high wealth individuals that just wrote checks to the organization. So uh, with that type of funding, that falls into incorporated accounting, uh, restricted funds or non-restricted funds. So restricted funds are the funds that are tied to these government contracts. Typically, you can only use them for certain things. And then the unrestricted funds are like the do- donations, and you can spend that however you need to. So once the money lands at the organization, uh, you have the ability to sort of funnel money to different things however you want to. So I never saw the details on how money was funneled to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. It was a sort of a high-level item in the accounting books in the meetings I sat in the weekly, you know, sort of finance meetings. Um, I was involved in reviewing the NIH proposal. Uh, for these uh, coronavirus gain of function work. Um, I was a member of PREDICT, which it was a global biosurveillance project, sort of more, more fishing for viruses globally, specifically coronaviruses. And you could see how the interaction between all these different uh, contracts and proposals were leveraging different funding at different times to execute this gain of function work outside of the United States
1: even with all your work involvement in it when did you decide to write the book was it from the mass amount of this pandemic just being a huge confusion I think a lot of people are confused I mean did it come from the lab did it come from the market I mean I think there was an article I read that the lab or there was the lab and then near the market was hit by two like Corva tornadoes or something like that I don't know if that was some type of conspiracy but I was like wait a minute do they have weather manipulation powers I don't know but that does lead down the conspiracy route honestly if you even mention it people glaze their eyes over at you now, where I just look, I go, the basic principles is, when you look at research, there are some people who are out there for really trying to help and really trying to discover things. But what happens is after a while of being involved in an organization, you tend to get your palms greased a couple of times and you lose aspect of what's morally right and what's morally wrong. You start looking into the fact that there has been nothing like this that has ever happened long before. So whenever they were doing coronavirus research, I have no clue. But it's you've never had a disease that's jumped from an animal a bat to a human like that and you've had bat studies for a very very long time which made me question this a little bit then when the records came off in january and you couldn't check back and you realize they deleted all their thing now you keep research for a reason even a backup of it to go back to it later but they were like nope we lost it all we deleted all our files it's like you would delete crucial information and then there's just been a bunch of cover up a bunch of news slander stories that if you believe the lab it's a conspiracy so they even call you racist they'll say you're a right-wing racist whatever you want to say if it say it came from the lab and i go you don't think it's more racist to say that it came from a market and the cuisine at the market was the cost of this deadly virus like what were they eating over there which even if you say any of these things out loud they should raise questions but it, it, it hasn't. And it's been proven gain of function research. It has been proven that was gain of function research. But Fauci in Congress said, no, that's not gain of function. Now, I revert back to the Kerry Mullis interview. I don't know if you've ever seen that before, but he's in like a rainbow forest whatever cafe t-shirt in the middle of his house talking about Anthony Fauci talking about all these people and he's just brutally being honest like you shouldn't trust any of these people and he was the guy who invented the PCR test it's just like this more revelating thing where you're like this guy doesn't care if he gets killed the next day he's just like I'm just gonna be drunk and say whatever I want in front of a camera and I think with all the inner in- intercepts really done And really try to get exposed to emails. I mean, there's emails back and forth. And then now a recent Vanity article, a Vanity Fair article that came out saying that there was actually scientists talking about how like CC, they were trying to bury the CCP narrative. And it's just been really, really confusing. I mean, there's a lot of aspects of this thing, which I think is the point because it tends to get you lost.
0: Yeah, no. So uh, there's so much to break apart there. So I think there is one point of clarification. So just uh, maybe a good scientists. So there are actually cases where basic uh, diseases have spilled over from bats to humans. The, the one that the textbook case that they usually teach in graduate level programs in public health or infectious diseases, is Nipah virus. Typically those are fruit bats. Uh, they're, they're sort of the reservoir. They'll go eat fruit and then they'll fly up into the roosting area of a pig pen. They'll drop the fruit onto the pig pen floor and then their saliva contaminates the fruit. The pig comes along and eats the fruit and they're sort of an amplification host then of how that disease then can spill over to humans. So there are cases of of this type of um, spillover and bats are actually a, a huge reservoir of viral diseases. Now, just because an animal is a reservoir or contains a lot of different viruses doesn't mean that there's an exposure risk or a spillover risk, and that's, that's a whole other discussion that we could get into. But there are cases of it, and I think um, this is where the lines sort of get blurred is that you can create a very convincing story of how a coronavirus could emerge naturally this way, based on anecdotal or corollary evidence which, which exists and is supported by science. So. You have to have to be careful there. It's not it's not that it's impossible, but it's not likely. And, and within you know, I think that the, the original question you were asking me is, well, you know, why am I writing this book, or why did I write this book? Well, um, I've always been a person to, to speak truth to power, power and tell tell it the way it is. And I became aware of the pandemic uh, mid December of 2019 through a couple different methods. One, I was communicating with a couple people uh, in professional forums that are from uh, Southeast Asia, and they sort of alerted me to something going on. And then, you know, as a scientist, what did I do or an analyst? I went and investigated that, and I actually looked at uh, particulate matter uh, um, 2.5 dispersion, and that's a uh, air pollutant, which is typically a fine, it's a fine, a really fine particle that's in the air, that uh, can cause asthma, it can cause all sorts of diseases, but when there's fires or uh, crematoriums are burning, uh, they put a lot of this material in the air. And there's actually excellent satellite data uh, of China because they're concerned about air pollution where you can go look at this. And there was actually point uh, uh, point source emissions coming from crematoriums in a GIS system like Google Maps. So it was pretty clear that there was something happening. And from working in this field for a number of years, and I used to be doing a lot—I used to do a lot of work with the, with the federal government in this space. I was confused why the narrative didn't make sense immediately. So, um, first, you know, you don't need to wear masks, even though uh, N95 respirator masks are effective, but they—they they didn't distinguish that difference. Uh, there's nothing to worry about; it's not going to spread. But there's a simple fact in in public health. Uh, in this field of biosurveillance if you detect one case for every one detected case or at the top of the triangle the pyramid there's hundreds if not thousands if not hundreds hundreds of thousands more cases underneath it you just detected one so that's what they call surveillance bias so when they said that, that this wasn't going to spread globally personally i was already going into panic mode I'm like holy crap this is going to go go over the planet if it's not already there um, i actually was living in the bay area of california um, I, I bought i bought two years a two-year supply worth of food. Uh, we got out of our, the property that we were staying at in uh, the East Bay, and we bought a house in the Upper Peninsula, of Michigan, and got there as fast as we could. So, I, I really d- definitely put my my money where uh, my mouth is. You know, thankfully, the pandemic d- didn't turn out to be as bad as what the, the initial data looked like. So, I think there, there's a variety of reasons we could discuss around that too. Why you know the the epidemiology and uh, the course of illness looked like it changed over time second theory that i have is that it probably got into vulnerable populations first uh, and people with multiple risk factors um so if they're the first ones to get exposed and they succumb to the illness it actually makes the disease look a lot worse than it is and i think that that's a lot of what happened in early 2020 so um there's you said a lot though so i think maybe i'm going off on a tangent here so
1: no i'm just i'll I, let you i, re- I want to i want to tackle um the lab thing because first and then we can go into like the data because if you're telling me that the data was scarier than what they've done to the general public when it comes to the whole fear aspect of things um especially during lockdowns and stuff that's even scarier to me i mean we were lucky it didn't turn out worse than it was but i mean even with the immunologists, there's just been a whole complete turnaround when it came to the idea of like the investigation that the who did initially it came back okay. No, it didn't come from the lab. And they're like, "Well, hang on a second. What about this? Like, maybe we should do a second investigation. That should already raise eyebrows." Well,
0: yeah, in the whole craziness of putting Peter Daszak on the time of this too. So, sort of the, the motivation back to, to the, the book and, and why I felt the, the need to go, go down and write this book is one, it's really complex, and, and two, I don't want people to forget the, the facts of the timelines. So, you know, the interesting thing is the disease emerges. In the back of my mind, I knew that the that Equal Alliance had been funding the Wuhan Institute of Virology to do this gain-of-function work on coronaviruses. So the narrative that was being being communicated to us by the government, the lack of inaction, the the mixed the mix messages, plus knowing this information, my I strongly suspect right away that this was um, a laboratory leak or an intentional release of some type. Now, as time went on, when they started to develop this uh, wet market theory, that didn't make sense either, because um, what your audience should really understand, well, knocked my, my, head, my earbud out, what your audience should understand is that uh, the term wet market is a huge term, and meaning it defines a lot of different types of places where people buy food internationally, you know, outside of Western society. And there's a more specific term, which uh, which wet market includes, which is called a live animal market. Typically, live animal markets are the places where you're concerned about emerging infectious diseases happen, happening, but what was different here is that they use the term wet market, and wet market typically means a seafood market, and especially in this location in China. So what did I do? You know, I went and pulled up this, this wet market on Google Images and started looking at pictures of it, and it looks like a very a pretty nice place to buy, to buy food. So right away, this isn't adding up. Usually when you think of a, a nasty live animal market, you know, usually they're very dirty actually. Like they look like they're dirt, they're filthy. I've, I've been to these places in Africa and in South America and actually have ate at some of them before. Um, they usually have a lot of different types of animals, species animals, living tight quarters, they're stressed and there's really no hygiene or sanitation. Well, I didn't really see evidence of that at this market. So that coupled with the fact of, well, here we have this, this institution that's doing gain of function work on this type of viruses. The, the theory that they're trying to pitch, the narrative that they're trying to pitch about this coming out of a wet market, none of it added up. And I was very vocal with my, my colleagues in public health from you know sort of day one of this event saying that this was probably a laboratory leak. And as time went on, um, I think, you know to challenge what you're saying earlier, I think it's actually okay to talk about the laboratory leak now um, and I think most Americans actually believe it was a laboratory leak. What is so strange though is that the players and the people that control the media are trying to still restructure or restructure the debate or the conversations being not being a laboratory leak and and that's the the most absurd thing in the world. I mean, I think everyone can see through it at this point. So my goal in getting this book out is so people have another way to look at all the facts. It's very uh, fact dense. Um, it ha- talks about my history and, and how I know these things. And and so you sort of discusses my history and how it's relevant to this. And then let lets the audience decide for themselves, uh, based on these facts, what happened.
1: Can you give me some unethical issues that they were doing uh, before the whole pandemic started and everything, like some things that you saw them funneling money-wise, and did you come across any contracts that said gain-of-function research or coronavirus research at that lab in particular?
0: Oh, absolutely. And actually, I released some of those documents. Uh, Like I said previously, I reviewed the NIH coronavirus gain-of-function proposal, which was drafted, um, maybe it was started as early as 2013, but definitely 2014, and um, and submitted to NIH, and, and it lays that out. Uh, there's also a number of proposals where EcoHealth Alliance pitched the of function work to different sponsoring agencies. One of the most interesting was that uh, there's a organization that uh, called IncuTel. So IncuTel is the venture capital firm. Which invests into startup companies for the Department of Defense and the CIA. And Peter Dasick and I actually built a presentation, which Peter presented to In-Q-Tel, uh, which basically sold them on the gain of function work being done at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. I don't think or I don't believe that, that Equal Health received any funding from InQtel, but the interesting thing is, one of the PREDICT partners, there were three organizations UC Davis, Metabiota, and Eco-Authal Alliance, Metabiota received uh, investment fundi- funding from incutel for the same same type of work. Um, and that that has all sorts of strange tie ties because the the most recent thing that came from Metabiota is that a venture capital firm that's associated with Hunter Biden is tied to metabiota. so this this all gets sort of deep in the weeds in a hurry. Um, and and that was new information to me over the past. I think I learned about that in uh, February February or March of this year. Uh, the last part, at least the Hunter Biden tie to metabiota and eco health.
1: Well, the Hunter Biden thing that happened in the state right beside me. So as soon as that came out, I knew that was real. Um, It happened in Delaware. And then they try to cover it up where I was like, this is just kind of like the same, which is interesting, because if we talk about like the lab, for instance, is it just the fact that you subcontract another company to go do the work or do the research so that you don't it's to cover your own ass like it really if you try to examine it like i saw the courtroom cases between rand paul and fauci and everything like that and you could tell there's a lot like of he was answering the questions honestly But I mean, to a sense, but more like the questions that were being asked were like, did EcoHealth Alliance fund this? It's like, no, EcoHealth Alliance didn't fund that. It's like, yeah, because you were subcontracting from something else. Now, did you receive money? Sure, you can. I mean, is that plausible deniability? I mean, it's being honest to the question, but in a sense, they knew that there were ties in there. If you look at the emails between Peter Dadzak and the Zoom calls that they had with people in China, you know, you can see that like he was bullying them into a position of not answering or not or going against against their ethics when it comes to science in a sense and then now the term science has just been littered through the muck to a point where it can't probably be returned but there's a lot of things where i mean a narrative aside whether you can talk about it now i get you can talk about it but it was just, why was the news, are they tied into? Why are they not reporting it? Are they getting money from it? I mean, they had a virologist or whoever, the bat lady that came on on Twitter and on screen saying there's never been a bat at that facility. Then they show a 2014 picture of Obama holding a bat at that fucking lab. I'm sorry, but that to me was like, what? And then she disappears where I'm like. Hang on a second. Like, I know me saying this, people are like, you're going, you're drinking the water, you're drinking the Kool-Aid. No, this is for real. Like, let's just before even the market theory, I'm sorry, I'm going to go all over. This is a, a topic close to my heart. But a popsicle truck or some frozen food factory they said it came from and it was delivered on a truck and went to that market now they're saying it originated in that market then before that they were saying it was a penguin whatever it was called those penguin things that and i had a penguin scientist on the show talk about this sucks because this animal never gets any credit and it's like now it's being labeled with the worst pandemic in the past whatever 100 years where you start going with so many balls up in the air, I'm curious to how many they can juggle. And I think at this point, you're having a lot of people now just stop
0: caring. Well, and I think that's the nature of the psychological operation that's being levied against uh, the global population on this subject. So the more that they can keep the discussion in the weeds, the more they can confuse um. The the hard facts, the more that people will glaze over and not become disinterested and want to move move on with life. I mean, I have to say that I have those moments myself. I mean, it does feel very much like an uphill battle. I, I know other people that have been fighting the battle that um, have had difficulty paying their bills. You know, they stop they stop their they stop working to work on this this subject uh, full time. It's very much an uphill battle. Um, I don't think the world's going to forget so easily. And I think in the United States, at least, if there's a change in in power, uh, if the Republicans gain control of the Congress or the Senate, at least in this next election, there'll probably be more momentum um, on the investigations. They'll be able to uh, actually actually pressure some of the uh, Office of Inspector Generals from the various agencies involved to do their own investigations, and then they'll actually have the ability to investigate on their own. So I think that, that change will come and, and things take time. Um, the nature of the, the shifting discussion, well, you know, we think it's pang, pangolins, we thought it was frozen food. Um, that's all, you know, it's all smokescreen. And to anyone who's worked in this field, you can eliminate those hypotheses very quickly um, using a number of analytical or scientific techniques. And if you look at the, just the hard facts around this event, it's very clear that there's not one shred of evidence to indicate that this was a naturally emerging disease. And, and then, if you look over, you know, so if you make you, know, you want to call it the lab theory, but I think it's the only theory. Um, if, it, if this were an engineer designed agent, what's the evidence for that? And that list keeps getting longer by the day. Um, the, the reality here is that the mRNA platform and the the vaccine, if you want to call it that. Gene therapy now is the, the actually the pharmaceutical industry now calls it a, a gene therapy and not a, not a vaccine, which is interesting. But if you look at the, the mRNA platform and the history behind that, and you look at the history of the gain of function work, these were two government programs that happened in concert together over time. And um, it's really unfortunate. Um, I, I think one of the, the one of the more interesting things that has been underreported was that there, was, there were several genetic sequences that were patented by Moderna in 2016 that match the wild type. I wanna make sure I say this correctly because I don't wanna screw it up, it's a big deal. There are several sequences that that were patented by Moderna in 2016 that match the wild type strain that's circulating, meaning the the disease that emerged, okay, and we don't have to argue about whether or not it naturally emerged or came out of the lab, has matching sequences to a 2016 patent filing by Moderna. And what that means is that this agent had been worked on in the hands of US-funded scientists, patented by US-funded scientists. And the probability that that just say this one sequence would wind up in the wild type strain is one in three billion. Think about that for a second. So uh, one in three billion on the one sequence. Now there's up to, to five different genetic characteristics which match other patent filings. So when you add these together, the probability that that could happen naturally is it's it's impossible. And it's just the one sequence alone is impossible. And I think this is what Dr. McCullough gets at uh, in some of his talks that I've watched, is that in the laboratory, when you do the gain of function work, you can work hundreds of thousands of years ahead of natural evolution. And by that same logic, that same pop- probability process or statistical process, you can backwards calculate. And, and that's what they've done. And this is this actually came out in a peer re- peer-reviewed paper. I can send you the link to it after this um, about the matching sequence. So I, the to, to me, the debate is really closed whether or not this is naturally emerging or not. It, it definitely was a, an engineered virus. The, the only question is, how are we going to prevent this from happening again?
1: so i'm going to ask a couple things when it comes to some facts you could lay out or some things you could lay out for anybody that believes that it was like a natural spillover it came from the market just because there's people out there that go it might be evidence-based or i'm in the same boat with you where this is like the only probable thing but there's a lot of people out there that aren't too up on the news or don't really care to look into it anymore and they just It would just be easier if you could lay out a couple of things. But one question I have is if it's that mRNA sequence and they had the exact one, that one in three billion possibility of having that one, is that just because that maybe they knew that they wanted to research on this one specifically so they could test it or release it and then have it spread so they can use this agent as so? Because what's really weird is how there's been a one-stop shop when it comes to whatever you can use to get over, and that's with this specific vaccine this certain type and I go man if anything they never did this with any diseases really it would be like if someone got sick you would try your best but they completely eliminated all other options of treatment which makes me wonder like is the brother of Pfizer or is the Pfizer person a brother of somebody involved that's making money as well on the side as well too like I'm starting to realize a lot more of this pharmaceutical stuff and there's been that conspiracy or controversy or just that stereotype that we can all say that big pharma always out there to do this that just lost during the pandemic there has been this complete aspect of now everyone's so trusting in big pharma when before this pandemic they were
0: all against it yeah, the, 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 you, you touched on, on many interesting things there. I'll try to break it apart the best I can and make sure to bring me back to something if there's something I miss. This is where the Anthony Fauci story is really interesting. So to, to, to bring a new market to drug during a pandemic, actually, let me go back a little bit further. So um, the history for the mRNA platform was one out of necessity. So the reality is when a pandemic hits, we can't ramp up we can't manufacture traditionally egg uh, traditional egg-based vaccines at scale or in time to have a mitigating effect on the pan- pandemic they just take too long to make so the, the first problem is that they take too long to make and then once you make them then you have to have your clinical trials and see if they work and then you might have to adjust the recipe the process to make it and then you have to go back so egg egg back- uh, Egg based vaccines are a non starter. And they, the US government and other people in the pharmaceutical industry have known this for a long period of time. Um, the push for the mRNA platform was seen as a solution to this issue because you can quick, quickly gene edit something uh, in uh, a, a sequence of the RNA or DNA with the mRNA platform to, to get something, uh, a, a drug or, you know, quote unquote, a vaccine out to the public quickly. Uh, so it, it's been viewed as, as a game changer. Now, when COVID emerged, um, they everyone looked at this and said, this is the time to, to go with this 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 platform. Now, that was problematic, though, for a number of reasons. So simultaneously to this, the push for using the mRNA platform, there are a number of different scientists all over the planet testing different drugs, pepsid AC, uh, hydro- hy- hydroxychloroquine, um, and numerous other... Anti-parasit- antiparasiticals, uh, ivermectin, things like that. And they're all showing that they were effective, at least to some degree. So it always matters when you administer a treatment, you know, what, what what are the characteristics of the patient and what's the outcome like for that patient at different stages of disease. These are all things that you want to track and measure in, in clinical trials to determine if a drug is effective, because, you know, you might have a drug, drug that's effective early Uh, with early onset of the disease, but not later in the course of disease when it's really severe. severe. So these are things you have to figure out, they're debatable, and we use uh, the scientific method to to figure that out. So in the context of this now, uh, the other thing is to to obtain the emergency use authorization for a new drug, and by rule, by FDA rule, you have to demonstrate that no other drug is effective in treating the disease. So what happened was that Anthony Fauci at NIH suppressed the effectiveness of these alternative treatments so that he could attain the mRNA platform for SARS-CoV-2, the effectiveness of these other drugs. Um, It was so important to get the new platform out was because a number of things. You could say that there's a lot of financial interest in in getting this new platform onto market. Uh, The second thing is you need to have a test bed to use it. So, meaning, when's gonna when will it be the opportunity to test this new platform that they were sitting on? And I think to everyone that was probably in the pandemic response circles, there's a lot of motivation to do it. And for some people, you could say that was completely nefarious. You know, they're bad people. You could also argue that uh, some of those people just really wanted to get bring a new drug to market to to help people. So um, it's really difficult to make specific accusations saying, well, this is a bad person, why they did it. This person did it for, um, you know, uh, good reasons. It could could be noble lies, for example. I mean, they talk about that in RFK Jr.'s book. All that aside, um, that's the reality of what happened. Uh, Now, the, the funny thing is with we're looking at all the different evidence. there. there's a a cocktail of different drugs that work for treating uh, COVID-19 effectively. And the mRNA platform, if anything, in in my opinion, it's actually pushed genetic drift um, faster, meaning um, the use of the mRNA platform only protects against the strains which are in the platform and then causes emergence of uh, new variants. And since we've seen the, the decrease in vaccination and boosters, the variants are not emerging as fast. I don't know if you've noticed that, yeah. but that's, that's what you would actually predict if the hypothesis was true, that the, M, the use of the mRNA platform uh, actually uh, selects for variants.
1: Well, I'd said from the beginning that vaccines or the booster shots and all that were probably causing variants because just you're adding something. That's how you get a variant. The original doesn't just evolve randomly. It has to come against something and then adapt to it and then evolve past that. Now you get that by adding something into the mix. And that's what we saw with booster shots and vaccines that were happening. They were adding something like a spike protein, whatever it was, that caused this thing to jack up. And that's why you saw every single variant was tracing after every single vaccine shot that we got. I mean, we have, what, four variants? And then there's like four vaccine shots or almost we're going on five. I think there's probably five variants now. They had, I forgot. I lost count because they keep naming them after like the Greek alphabet. But that was my like little thing. I wasn't too invested into it because a bunch of people were like, I don't know about that. I was like, okay, I won't touch that. But one that has more solid evidence is when we come to the fact of Fauci to me doesn't seem like a super bad guy, but I feel like he had a taste of the limelight for a very long time. And after having bobbleheads made out of you, signs put up on your yard saying, I pray to Anthony Fauci at night um, before dinner, which I did see. I start to realize this person has an ego issue and I can recognize that because I have one myself. When you start having all that comfortability in that spotlight, You don't ever want it to go away. And that's what I saw with him coming on screen saying you need to get this. We're not done yet. We're going to have to go back into lockdowns, all this type of stuff. And then eventually the public stopped buying it. The public didn't care anymore. And then he was like, all right, yep, you're free to go. Like once people started pushing back, restrictions started to get let up and it made it seem like the government was doing it for you. So you could go out to be free when really it was just people pushing back. Now, from your experience involved with EcoHealth Alliance, how much of it like did you smell sulfur did you smell any of that like when it comes to demons in there or was it just a lot of people that were really heading down a bad path which is an experience I've started to learn from a lot of whistleblowers that I've talked to is just that the original mission is kind of lost and that kind of gets funneled in with money now the reason why I don't think they wanted the lab thing to trend or they didn't want it like this as soon as that guy said there was a second investigation into the lab I literally just pictured a bunch of people going, what are you freaking doing? Because I don't think like the articles that came out after that were conspiracy sparks up again or people trying to bring up a conspiracy when really I think it's to cover their ass when it comes to the Chinese or the Wuhan lab, the government over there is because that would spark up a war. If you had a bunch of people blaming it coming from that lab or coming from this, it's much easier to say it was an accidental thing from nature, so it's nobody's fault. First of all, to avoid a war. Second of all, to avoid never having, or never being able to work with them again. Because you saw it, China became very, very hostile when we started suggesting that it came in there when we talked about a second investigation. They just let us on that final investigation report just mention the lab they said but don't go into it there's a specific letter from our to peter Dazag or something from one of those members that were involved in that zoom call that the intercept released saying don't go into it just you can mention it you can put it in your article but don't talk about it because they they had to you had to address that you did check that you had to address that they didn't even want it mentioned on the thing but we kind of stuck our foot in with that and let it be mentioned so what are your thoughts? Why did you what do you think, at least from your experience being involved in this type of work or this type, form of being an eco health alliance? Do you think it was to avoid war? Do you think it was to avoid? I mean, why is it that nobody's doing a more thorough investigation and we aren't begging or getting transparency from their government?
0: You have a great thought process. You walk through a lot of things. So I'm going to go back and, and cover the first. first I hope uh, I'm doing
1: it correctly because I feel yeah, like I'm no, all over I, the board.
0: No, I mean, I don't think you're all over the board. In psychology, they talk about whether or not have, someone has a linear or nonlinear thought process. So as long as you always come back or you finish the point and it's all in order. That's a good thing. So you have a linear thought process. That's good. Uh, so the first thing, uh, Anthony Fauci. So first of all, Anthony Fauci lied to Congress. Uh, so that's a big problem. And I think I think he'll end up paying for that eventually. Um, he has I think deliberately misled the US public on a number of different aspects of the pandemic, whether it's the origin, whether it's redemsivir, whether it's um the mRNA uh gene therapy vaccine treatment, however you want to frame that. So I, I think I think he's not. I don't think he's acting nobly. I mean, just even the, if you look at the the mask guidance and, and how he flip flip uh, flip back and forth on that. I mean, would it have been so difficult with a man with his experience and his education to come out and actually describe and explain to people the difference in in masks? You know, there's a difference between a surgical mask. There's a, a difference between a respirator. This is the gradient. This is this is why we think these things. No, it was never that kind of nuanced discussion. He treated everyone like a bunch of idiots and said he needed to wear three masks. You know, with how ridiculous that is, not like that would actually increase the filtering or protection of, of um, to the individual or to others. So, so he, he he's guilty of a number of different things, and I think his time time is coming. Um, As far as the people who work at Equal Health Alliance, they have a high turnover employees, at least when I worked there. And I had some friends who continued to work there after I left. And I don't think that pattern changed. So um, Dr. Dasik is very much a bully. Um, He pushes people very hard. Um, He is a manipulator. So I watched him, you know, know, Thinking back about when the Lancet letter came out, talk where he organized the science, scientists to put out this um, basically letter saying, like, this we know this came from the wet market and all the rest of people, like mere conspiracy theorists. I watched him engage in that behavior around a number of scientific issues where basically you could go out and find the scientists, draft the letter yourself. Okay, you write the letter, you get them to sign on and agree to it. You publish it sort of not as peer-reviewed scientific letter, uh, literature, but as a letter in a reputable journal. And that's how you structure and manipulate science. It's actually very effective. And I don't think most people are aware of how often that happens. Uh, so if I want to set the discourse on an issue, one way to do it is that I go talk to my scientific friends. Hopefully, they have big names. I write a letter, a draft of it. I circulate the draft to these people. Say, you signed this letter. I'm just going to submit it as a letter to the Lancet. And most of the time people want another bullet point on their CV. They wanna be included in things, they want money. So they'll agree to have their name included. You submit it to the Lancet, it gets published, or I do. I submit it to the Lancet, it gets published. And now I could have maybe just shifted the discourse in the whole academic community by, by submitting one letter, which is not even peer reviewed science. And Peter did this all the time. He does this, probably is still doing it to this day. Now the reason why you do it—it's highly effective. I learned how to do this actually as a graduate student myself. Uh, if you can shape and set the discourse of the debate, you've already won. And all the people who are providing money for research and development read these letters because they're—they're they're short, they're digestible. People are busy. I mean, doctors, scientists are very busy. Um, we'd like to spend more time reading and reviewing things in, in detail than we do. I'm, probably, you know, speaking for the whole scientific community here, but that's reality. People are busy. They don't have time to read in detail. So these letters get a lot of attention. They also get a lot of attention from the media because they're digestible. They're not talking about a lot of p-values, a lot of scientific words that people might not understand, a lot of nuance, which comes with a peer-reviewed article. So Peter was very good at structuring that. Um, looking at the other executives um, at Equal Health Alliance, you know, I, I think they're they're stuck. Uh, from what I know, so uh, Kevin Olival, um, all, uh, John Epstein, uh, Billy Koresh, you know, they're. Can you imagine working at an organization you're affiliated with this this lab league, this gain of function work? Where are you going to go easily? You know, if this all falls apart, and I think there's probably a lot of people in your organization like that. If if this falls apart, where's the next career move? Maybe, maybe they'll get employment easier than you know, what I'm thinking, but it might be difficult to get work back in this, this specific field. Um, but that's only on the based on the assumption that the field sort of implodes. Um, I sort of hope that it does. Uh, it needs to be cleansed, and science needs to be brought back to it. I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, I think there's probably going to be some some middle ground in the future where this, you know, where there's probably going to be more regulation on gain-of-function work. I don't think gain-of-function work is going to go away. Um, I personally would like to see uh, gain-of-function work abolished. I mean, I think the whole premise for it is completely asinine. Uh, the idea that we can uh, predict what Mother Nature is going to do, engineer years ahead, and then develop a countermeasure simultaneously to treat this thing that doesn't exist in nature. I mean, it's, it's a huge waste of taxpayer money. Um, it's not effective from a public health standpoint but they they're they're they're, they're, they're powerful but then again these are powerful lobbying groups too with the pharmaceutical industry and academia actually as a as a lobbying organization
1: i get the preparedness aspect but the issue starts to become is you're trying to be prepared by literally sparking up the danger that's going to bite everyone in the ass and you're not prepared to cover your ass for it like it's it's literally like setting a fire but you don't have any fire extinguishers in your home like you're expecting it to just go out with good intent and prayer Like it doesn't make sense. But what scares me and my fear that kind of I'm starting to see now is that science has always been what exactly is happening right now where people are afraid to speak out and afraid that they're going to be labeled as such and they're going to be they're going to lose their job they're not going to be able to feed their families this happened with uaps back in the day a lot of scientists would refuse to even study what those lights in the sky were all because that they were going to afraid they're going to be bullied or they're going to be blacked out by any of their institutions there's actually a couple scientists that did commit suicide from all the slander that they got from all their fellow scientists this is where i start to say it's not really changed but my issue becomes is that the faith starts to be lost in the institutions. If you're in a position at any job that you're in, whether it's science or not, and you feel uncomfortable about speaking out about something you don't believe in, or you see something going wrong and you're afraid of losing your job, you shouldn't be in that position. Not you necessarily. You just shouldn't be forced to that spot to feel that way ever. And in science, we have always bested and credited people who have taken these out of the box thinking or out of the blank thinking, I would say. Mm -hmm. Name show drop. but. All these great thinkers, that's where all excellences come from, that person taking that shot or having an outside opinion that didn't fit with every single person. And right now, you have this position where people might read something and be like, okay, I'm not going to go against this because this is my boss, or okay, this is the narrative. I don't want to be labeled a conspiracy theory. I'm just wondering how the fuck—I'm sorry for the language—but how, how did they get to a point where the lab leak with— Proper evidence or all of the common sense, that if you just said it out loud, that it came out from there. How did that become a conspiracy? Now, I get it if it's because of the news slander, but it's gotten to the point now where. People say that's a right wing this, and it's somehow labeled into politics now. And I'm like, you can't do that with just basic evidence in trying to realize that there when you get, what is it? John Stewart said this, When you get <laughs> the name of the virus is the name of the lab. Like, I'm just saying, like, we're still calling it Wuhan-like virus. We're still calling it that. It might be COVID, but we all know it originated in Wuhan. So I'm just wondering, is there going to be a pushback? Because right now, even if they said it came from NIH, if it came from this, funding this, whatever, we shouldn't destroy the institution. But much like you were saying-
0: This is, this is that goes down so many paths. I mean, so uh, what we're talking about, how we define things, that's the last part of what you're talking about. Uh, we've changed what it means to be vaccinated. So vaccinated used to mean and actually the US Patent and Trademark m- Mark Office has ruled on this. Uh, co- according to the, the Patent and Trademark Office, a vaccine by definition prevents transmission of the disease. Um, now if you look at what actually Peter Daszak, like Ralph Baric and some of these other scientists are trying to push uh, in how they're actually manipulating Playing the public publication game, as I was speaking to earlier, they're trying to say, "Well, vaccines now are just meant to reduce the severity of illness or disease." So, what's happening right now in in public health, in medicine, in infectious disease science is that they're going through and they're trying to redefine everything. Everything that we've had very stable terms with for the past, I'd say, of. Well, 30 to 50 years of science, okay? And that's really problematic because when we change these definitions, not only are we you know, redefining things for the future, but then it makes it really difficult to to benchmark and compare against the past to, to determine whether or not we're actually making progress in, in different areas. So, so so that's the first problem. And um, yeah, I'll stop there. Well, I'm gonna it's, go it's,
1: on. it's like Agent Orange. Agent Orange, there was Agent Orange, Agent Blue, Agent Red, Agent Pink. And then they had other numbered letters between them where it was... They from historical records now, it's just hard to trace back. Was it C21 this, this, or was it C21 this, this? Like the numbers are so close together where you couldn't find the correct form of what caused what, so there was no paper trail to get back to any specific company. I mean, that's kind of what this is in a sense. It's just a term of language. They use lockdown and quarantine, it's the same thing, but one makes you sound like a good person, the other makes you sound like you're a prisoner. Like, what?
0: Yeah, well, this is the strange world that we live in where they were simply just trying to redefine our way out of problems. And I think this is what a lot of what the the woke movement is, what they used to call politically correct, is that if you change the the definition on everything, it becomes something else and becomes something new just by redefining it, even though facts or science say something else. And my advice is try to, re, to, to resist that whenever you can, if when you have these people who want to label you as right wing, whether you're right wing or not, just point back to the specifics and the facts. The simplest thing that you can say to anyone is, well, okay, so what facts do you have that this came, that this was, this was naturally emerging? And Typically what will happen in my experience is that they're gonna talk about the number one of the papers that all point to the wet market. There's a simple response back to that. Do you know that those data that they're analyzed were the approved release data by the Chinese government? And you can sort of leave it at that because there's, this, there's all the other data that the Chinese government didn't release. There's the destruction of records that happened at their laboratory. These are not behaviors that, that innocent organizations engage in. Um, to go along with it, uh, so NIH um, is also covering up, uh, or, or has hidden sequences or deleted sequences. Uh, USAID is has hidden um, or is not released sequences. So this is also on the US government side of the fence too, that we're actually sitting on information which could link this back to being, having a, a laboratory or origin. Equal Alliance used to have a database called the EDITH, Edith database which I've seen and I played with years ago, um, which, they would con- which they would put all the sequences into this database from all the different projects and project sponsors that they were working on. And here's a fundamental question, if, if this is all above board and this didn't leak out of the laboratory, then why hide all the evidence that would exonerate you? And you wouldn't, it's, it's that simple. Um, if you were the Chinese, the easiest thing to do right now would be to release all your information, provide explanations for everything. Because if it were naturally emerging, then you could just basically prove that you didn't have your hands on it. But in fact, everything else has been a cover-up and it's been cover-up on top of cover-up on top of cover-up. And that doesn't make it a conspiracy theory, (laughs) that makes it a fact. And that circumstantial evidence is very important, especially when you can't find um, a reservoir host host for this the, a reservoir host for this event. You can't find a spillover event. Um, and the details around what that event could have been, keep on keep on shifting. You know, it's, so this is, that's the smoke and a mirror, smoke and mirror event. But if you, you actually just look at the hard facts here of the circumstantial evidence, which, which is, has happened, the hard genetic evidence of, we have a sequence that was patented by Moderna in 2016, which mat- matches the emerging wild type strain. We can just talk about the one sequence it's over. I mean, there's really nothing left to debate. The thing is, we have to learn how to communicate this with other people that don't see our side of the debate in a way that can be understood. Um, And you could go through all the circumstantial evidence. And these people will always point back to these papers. Well, this one says this. Well, all those papers um, come from a very small set of authors, which are tied to the cover-up. That's fact. The second thing is, they're analyzing data, which were released by the Chinese government. And there's so what I'm saying is that it didn't analyze all the data out there. So if you only analyze the information that was provided to you, of course, it's going to look like what they want you to find.
1: When it comes to the market, do they not have an origin of what animal could have created that? Like, is it just the idea like, oh, it came from the market and then that's
0: it? Is it they just put a pin in it and walk away? Well, it depends who you ask. There's been a number of different papers which have speculated um, about what the spillover event could have been. But then this is where they look at the genetic sequence and they say, well, you know, there's pangolin in here or there's bat or there's this species. And they try to point to those sequences saying like that was probably could have been the animal. I'd argue, though, that that's that's all smoke and mirrors because there's no evidence to support that.
1: And. I mean, has there ever been in their records or anything that's open or available that you've come across or anybody has come across that has shown that there's been an animal that has the capacity to do that besides bats? Like if we're talking about a penguin, have they ever had that oh, ability?
0: They're, so they're, so by definition of z- zoonotic diseases, they, they transfer easily between mammals. So you could have a zoonotic spillover event between dolphins, between cats and dogs, between bats. You pick your rabbits. I mean, you pick your favorite mammal. They're, and if it has a disease and it has a zoonotic disease, it's, it has a potential to spill over to humans. That doesn't make it likely. Okay, so making, making frequently, uh, make, make it uh, probabilistically like that would happen. So making, meaning in terms of frequency or ex, how many times you'd have to be exposed to make that happen. So there, are a long list of zoonotic diseases. If you go search and you type in zoonotic diseases, and you could even add the term select agents to it, there's a few hundred that would come up, um, which are known to transmit to humans. But just because they exist doesn't make it probable that they'll turn into outbreaks, which turn into epidemics, which turn into pandemics. You have to have a very, very specific... um, but not very specific, but you have to have the right conditions to make that happen. You have to have the, the right environmental conditions so that the disease will transmit. So if we're talking about an airborne born pathogen here, say specifically a virus, uh, the virus has to be able to survive as it floats th- through the air until it's inhaled by another, another person. So you have to have the, the right genetics in that agent and characteristics so that it will survive through the air, live through the air until another person inhales it and then they become sick. It also has to have another property where uh, usually the disease that, that can cause epidemics or, or pandemics where uh, you, you only have to be exposed to a very small amount of the material, meaning it's highly infectious. So, you know, can imagine, you know, they're invisible, you can't see these things, but pretend that the virus is the same as a grain of sand. In one hand, you have one grain of sand, so that's not very virulent or infectious, or very infectious. And then in the other hand, you have a whole pile of sand. Okay, well, um, actually, that's a bad ex- explanation. So the one grain of sand could get you sick, uh, yeah. screwed up. So the one grain of sand could get you sick, but the whole pile of sand in the, in the other hand can't get you sick. You, know, you rub it all over your face, it doesn't get you sick. So the, the characteristic that you want the virus to have is that a small amount of the material can get you sick. Yeah. And so these are, just, these are all the characteristics, of whether, uh, how you determine whether or not a disease has pandemic potential because, um, you know, a lot of things have to go right for that to occur, for disease disease outbreaks to occur, to, to for epidemics to occur. You have to have what's called sustained transmission. And like like I said, a lot of things have to come together to make that happen. And that's that's why we don't have pandemics all the time, and that's why we don't have epidemics all the time, is that there has to be a whole host of factors that have to align to make that happen.
1: So with the initial attempt, if we're talking about the lab now of the purpose of what how it was released from there was it accidental was it something that was created to be used as a weapon um was it created and then released into the market which seems like a great way to cover your ass if you're going to end up blaming the market for me i just think it was an accidental thing i mean we have things of what is it it's not swine flu i think it is it's uh chicken pox we have little vials of it there's a video of bill gates where it's like all behind him, these little vials labeled smallpox that's what it is oh smallpox (laughs) We okay. have those in tubes still. So it's like you have the understanding of it in case something like an outbreak ever happens, you can research it. So do you think that maybe if it the lab, for instance, do you think that we just didn't know 100% of what was going on over there? We were funneling money into it, thinking that it was going to be in this direction, but really it was happening in another direction. I mean, it brings up a lot of possibilities because I think when you talk like I don't understand how this became a racist thing to suggest that it came from that. Like it's science and science, some it the whole point of science is learning, and sometimes you make a mistake. And sadly, that mistake has kind of killed a lot of people. I mean, I hate to say it like that, but
0: well, I, I think the the whole idea of calling when someone makes the accusation that the discussion that we're having is racist. You, I think you can frame that for, for what it is right away. It's a uh, it's a way to attack your opponent and, and label the thing that they're discussing as being unpleasant or um, not being akin to the society, societal norms. And just, I guess, you ignore it. I mean, I don't engage with those people because you can't, you can't, you can't win an argument with someone that's not going to engage in honest, intellectual debate. And if I'm ever wrong about anything, I'm happy to change my position. I mean, it, and it happens, especially in science, we get a lot of things wrong. Um, what was the the first thing that you brought up? So I wanted to come back the, to it.
1: The lab. What was the purpose initially for that? Do you speculate on? Was it something to be a bioweapon? Was it just, to-
0: yeah. So what you bring up here is a, a very important topic I, I make the argument this. It doesn't matter whether it was a weapon or not. By definition, by US standards, it was a bioweapon. So gain of function research uh, means mean literally means that you're enhancing the pathogenicity, the virulence, the transmissibility, the inf- infectivity of the agent. You're going to take this agent and you're going to make it so it gets people sick easier, and then so that it transmit easier. And these are the the, the perfect factors that I was talking about previously. So if you engineer or design this thing to, to be the perfect bug, and it's one of these select agents, uh, which coronavirus one was, then this is gain of, func- gain of function work. And it's also what they call a dual use research of concern, Dirk. And by Dirk, the Dirk the definition is very strange. It, what it means is that you could be doing gain of function work for a pe- peaceful purpose. You could also be doing it for bioweapons development. But here's the problem. If you're doing it for a peaceful purpose, because you want to make vaccines or countermeasures, then by default, you should also be treating it with a security posture that it's a bioweapon. And that's not what happens. So if you go through the the, the criteria and you say that we're doing gain of function work and it's for, for people, peaceful purposes, they treat that differently than if you're to check different boxes and say this is for bioweapons development. You know, if you check the boxes for bioweapons development, they're probably going to tell you to get the hell out of here. You know, you're crazy. You can't do this. But you say, oh, we're doing this for, for peaceful purposes. But here's the problem it's it's a catch-22. By very definition, if you're working on one of these agents and you're enhancing all these nasty characteristics of the agent, then it's you're essentially doing bioweapons work, but you're just calling it by a different name or putting it into a different category. And why this is getting so scary going into the future is that. The way that we do gain-of-function work is changing uh, rapidly. There's the direct modification and in inserting of, of different viruses into, uh, you know, strands of virus into another strand. So you can clip this DNA, put it into this, you know, you can take a HIV insert and put it into SARS-CoV-2. Okay. Well, there's other things you can do too. Where, so say that you go and you go sample and you collect uh, blood or fecal samples from a bat. And you have some interesting extraction techniques. And you take a look at this and you say, well, these are some really interesting genetic traits that we found in these viral samples. So say you you find a virus, but there's 10 different types of that virus. Okay, they have small genetic differences. And then the the 10th one you found is not very frequent, meaning it doesn't account for a large percentage of the sample, a very small percentage of the sample, but it has some really bad characteristics. So then you can just select for that one and take it, and then um, and use that to to make either I guess you could either grow that or replicate that, or you could use that as is when it's not the most frequent wild type strain occurring. So um, what happens is when you, when you when you make when you go collect these samples is that some of these occur more frequently than others. Meaning, so say that you find this type of virus and it has genetic traits. There could be multiple of almost the same virus with very small differences in its genetic code. And the ones that are harmless are, are frequent, meaning it takes up most of the population in the sample. But then there could be one that's just infrequent, but it's really dangerous. So then you take the infrequent one because it's really dangerous, and then you replicate it. And then you make it, make it more pronounced than it would be naturally. So that that's another way of doing gain of function work without any gene editing required. You're just selecting for traits which are infrequent. So that that that's that's one way of doing it, and that that's a gray area, right? I mean, so you're not actually manipulating it directly. All the scientist had to do, or the lab technician was select for the thing that was really nasty, but rare. And then you could you could replicate it.
1: That's their uh, plausible deniability when you're asked the question in court of did you do coronavirus research or gain-of-function research.
0: Now, well, well, no, that's a little different in this, this specific case. So they actually, the, the gene editing is very easy to prove in this case. Uh, how easy to prove is it? Well, like I said before, how else could you have a uh, one- well, it depends. we could talk about like the, the furin cleavage cleavage site for example. That's
1: that's what I'm talking about. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and we could get into that. So it's it's the only beta coronavirus that has a furin uh, cleavage site. So I don't know. I mean, you can just like this is, this this starts getting into the pile of factual scientific evidence which just happens to be circumstantial, but when you start to look at the whole body of it, you know, how how else could it happen?
1: Well, they had human cleavage tissue that was on rats that they were injecting into. So what was the whole story behind that? Cause I got I saw bits and pieces of that with articles, but it was just like a lot of this is like you really have to sit down and examine it. You can't just be on your phone looking through.
0: I usually look at a lot of these things on my phone, but <laughs> um, so what what's your specific question?
1: The human the, the tissue sites on these rats. Now were they injecting these rats with the 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 virus or were they
0: which rats are you referring to? So there, there's a lot of different rats in these studies. So are you, are you talking uh, like uh, Ralph Baric's laboratory? Are you talking about what the Chinese were doing? Um, the Chinese lab. doing. Okay. Um, I don't know. Um, so I'd have to go take a look and refresh myself so I didn't ask the question. I'm actually more familiar with some of the, the mouse model methods going on in Barracks laboratory. But then again, I'm not a rat guy, actually. It's my, I haven't spent a ton of time in wet labs. I've managed a couple. I'm uh, more of a, the quantitative epidemiologist there's a division which happens typically to people w- when they go on to get masters or PhDs in public health, they go down two different routes. They either go the quantitative route or they go the lab route. And by nature, you, over time, you usually get exposure to both, but you end up being better at one, one or the other. What was
1: happening at the other lab? Not the Chinese one. Eric's lab. Do you know well, that? One?
0: Well, which part? I mean, they, in the, which year? So it dates back way to 2002. So they
1: were experimenting with just injecting rats in general with different types of viruses. Was there a purpose in it from, is it still the coronavirus research or is it, or not coronavirus, uh, gain of function research?
0: Well, this would be, so this is a whole um, different discussion. So if you go look at, and this would would take you some time to do some research on, but at Ralph Barrett's laboratory, they've worked on a number of different agents over the years. Um, doing gain-of-function techniques, um, and also a lot, developing a lot of intellectual property around animal models and, and mouse models. And if you go back and you look at that, I mean it—it's—it's it's a lot of work. I mean his, his whole his whole career has been on this type of work with different agents.
1: No, I, I wasn't expecting like a full breakdown of it. I was just trying to understand is because when we're, you realize with rat testing, it goes so far back. I just think when you're trying to experiment on something or when you're injecting something into something, that thing can be manipulated by that thing's body where you initially start to start to have outbreaks, which I'm just trying to bring it back to like oh, the lab okay. thing, well, for instance.
0: Well, for example, I mean, so that, uh, I, I think your heart, your heart's in the right place answering the question. I mean, it can be dangerous answering it because there's a lot of different things you can inject into a mouse for a lot of different purposes. And then what you're talking about is how that drug would then interact with the, the host that you're injecting into, how, how it interacts with that animal. So is your question, if you inject a disease, an infectious agent into the animal, how it could interact with the mouse and then produce something new? Is that your question?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, cause they found rats at the lab in Wuhan. So I'm just curious to, were they doing the same things that we've always done with animals where we inject them in, with something and expect to see what, how we can treat it or how we can handle it? Like if we're, if they're doing gain of function research, which is manipulating a virus to see if it gets spread or be able to recover from, you know, a pandemic happening or something like that would that if we have research from the past showing we've tried this before and it's been effective could this be something where the lab it just went wrong and then that's where we have this giant issue
0: well there, there's so many different issues so the first thing that happens with the well, i shouldn't say the first thing that happens but what happens with the gain of function work is that they have to create humanized mice so you have to have receptor cells in the animal or the host that you're injecting to so that they behave in the way that an animal a human does Okay, so just because you go down the path of injecting, so say you have a a mouse, you know, a typical lab mouse, and you were going to inject a a virus into it, it doesn't mean that that all of a sudden is going to create some some nasty bug. You actually have to go through quite a bit of process to make um, mice which will, will have cells in their body which will be receptive to the agent that you're injecting. For purposes of, of human research, so there there's a long process of of how they went through a bunch of ex, uh, experiments to make these humanized mice or bats, and th- that was sort of their secret sauce and how they 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 did this gain of function work.
1: Because when when we take it back to the lab, for instance, the one of the questions I asked was, "How do you think this thing spread?" Now you, I, I'm pretty sure you answered it, but. What's curious to me is that they had one person give an interview, the bat lady, give an interview. Now there's been no other interviews besides that one that she was in that lasted like a minute and a half that was on Twitter. And then since then she has removed her account and that video is basically gone. You can still find it on YouTube when someone was able to snap it and put it up there on different accounts or something like that. But any type of discussion where they've taken a bit of what she says, and it's in a transcript, there is a drawing of her. There isn't an actual photo. Besides that one where it's in her suit that everyone sees at the top of the thing, where I start questioning like, what else is going on there? I mean, if they had a thing saying there were no bats at that lab, and they have a picture of
0: Obama with that, I just start to question. Have, I'm like, have you have you seen the diffuse proposal? Mm-mm. Okay, so check this out. This this is gonna blow your mind. So check out the it's called the DARPA. Diffuse proposal, and your audience should go take a look at that too. And this was a, a proposal submitted by EcoHealth Alliance to DARPA to basically inoculate, aerosolize a virus into simulated caves. Um, as we're looking t- at
1: it, I can give you screen share permissions.
0: Oh no, I'm not looking at. It. I just okay. I have this memorized. So go take a look at this. And this was the, the the proposal that lays out specifically the work of how you would make the SARS-CoV-2 agent that leaked and how the you will show you how, the, how easily the accident uh, could occur. And the other weird thing about this DARPA proposal, so DARPA rejects it. They say that this looks to be dangerous and risky work and they specify why in the proposal, so uh, in the review of the proposal. So I, I encourage you to go take a look at this, have your audience take a look at it. It's another smoking gun. So EcoHealth Alliance, what I'm telling you, submitted a, the very proposal with the Wuhan Institute of Virology as the partner And laying out the exact work, which would lead to this accidental lab, lab release. Where do you expect, it'll it'll blow your mind. I mean, I wish we could talk about it in detail here, but they, 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 they have it set up. Uh, I mean, they, they talk about how they're going to aerosolize and inoculate these back caves. uh, And it's simple. I mean, if you, if you aerosolize, so say you had a container in a lab, you're working in a you know BSL-3 lab. So there's, there's this whole classification of BSL-1, BSL-2, BSL-3, BSL-4, the other thing your audience should know too is that sometimes there's weird things that, that scientists do, we'll call something a two plus if it has higher uh, safety precautions or a three plus, that kind of thing happens. But uh, what, what's widely speculated is that in the Wuhan Institute of Virology was that they were not working at the proper biosafety level for the types of research and pathogens that they're working with. So that means you wouldn't be wearing the, the proper protective equipment to prevent exposure to these agents. To go along with that, the types of work that they were doing was really high high risk because of the type, the nature of the work. So anytime you go aerosolizing some, some agent, which you're trying to, to one, make aerosolized, okay, that's the first thing the gain of function work you're doing. You're trying to make it so this thing suspends in the air and infects things. You can't see it. And if you don't contain it well, and it leaks out of this cage is, you know, say you have it in a glass cage and it leaks out, you're not going to see it. And if you're not wearing the right equipment or you don't have the right sanitation and environmental health, um, uh, biosecurity, biosafety uh, processes in place, accidents, these are how accidents happen. And this is all laid out in that DARPA-Diffuse proposal, what they were said they were going to do. And the interesting feedback I can give your audience here is that most people don't know this about science. We work ahead of the receipt of funding. So we don't write grants and wait for the money to, to come to us. You never will get any money if you work that way as a scientist. This is what you do. I do the work first. Then I write the proposal. And then I submit it. And the audience or the grant reviewers of their agencies then have proof that my project is low risk and will be a success because I've already started working on it. And... I've done that since that's a trick you learn as you become a more successful scientist. And uh, the further you work ahead, the, the better you are, the further you work ahead. For example, my, my wife's a scientist. She's three to four years ahead of her funding right now. So when she writes a proposal today, it's work that she's already completed two to three years in the past. So now put that in the context of what I'm telling you about this DARPA diffuse proposal at Equal Alliance, We did the same thing, and I've I've actually released documents to prove this. When we submitted proposals, we had already completed the first year to two years of work. Okay. So when they submitted this DARPA-Diffuse proposal, which was rejected, do you think or do you believe that the work was already being completed? Yeah. Oh, my
1: God. I'm getting a headache. I'm getting a freaking (laughs) headache, dude, because I I know exactly what you're talking about because – There is with pharmaceutical companies, the experts that review that data are only, um, they're only reviewing the data that was given by the pharmaceutical companies that Mm -hmm. did the research. So only the stuff they allowed you to look through to fact check.
0: Well, that's a whole nother can of worms. Uh, It's the same stuff. It's
1: business influence in actual thing. And they say, trust the experts. It doesn't make sense.
0: Well, the other thing too, about eco-athlions, Metabiota, all these people that are involved with this, the Global Virome Project. Uh, board their board of directors are full of people from the pharmaceutical industry okay and they all sit on the boards of each other's companies so from metabiota to EcoHealth alliance um academics at uc davis all these people um run in the same circle together and they all serve on the boards of each other's companies
1: this god damn um Is there, I I know you mentioned something earlier that um, I've said a couple of times, which is people say like no government, none of this. I don't think that's the answer, but you mentioned something about you need to kind of clear, you need to clear out the boardroom and you kind of need to relook through everything again. I think that's 100% what needs to happen in a lot of institutions, a lot of government positions as well. So I think there needs to be a look through because I think the original mission, the original intent that people expect these people to still serve is not really the thing anymore. Hence, Peter Dazag and his bullying, for instance, if he's bullying other employees, you're not necessarily really worried about getting the correct data out there anymore. You're more worried about keeping your job to get your tenure. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like a lot yeah. of positions. Well, that, for
0: that, that's academia in a nutshell. And this comes back to something you were saying earlier. We're not selecting scientists to be leaders. And you, you'd like to think that all these scientists were great, creative, independent thinkers. First of all, the kind of person who becomes a scientist is usually not a leader. And that's because they're the kind of people that, especially the laboratory scientists and a lot of the quantitative folks, we just want to be left alone in our office and we want to do our work and we don't want to have to interact with a lot of other people. I mean, it's we do a lot of independent writing all by yourself. It's a lot of a lot of isolation in, in being a scientist. And people, you know, they if they seek that as their occupation, typically they're they're not the, extrovert, the extroverted leader type. Obviously, there are some of those people within the mix of scientists, but it's the exception and and not the rule. And to go along with that, once you're you're in academia, like in a university or some of these institutions which function like academic institutions, you are not encouraged to, to, to be creative or to be a leader or challenge the status quo because you don't want to upset your project sponsors so if you want money to do your research you know you better better shut up and do your work because i don't think there's any chance that i could go back to NIAID now the rest of my career and anthony fauci and ask him for grant money i don't think there's a chance that that would ever happen and there's other scientists in in my position who've went up against uh, anthony fauci which have similar experiences where they've, you know, you've seen their their funding levels drop off after they challenged him on something. Um, And not that I'm ever intending to go back and get money from them. Again, I think I'd I'd rather die. But uh, that's the reality. I mean, if you challenge the status quo, if you are a leader, you have independent thought. Um, If you don't tell the party line, they will beat you into submission. And for most people and most scientists, it's easier just to shut up and and go to work and um, get your work done. And be left alone, whether it's the best science you could you could be doing or not. And this is, this is this actually gets at a bigger problem with the funding of higher education and research. You know, we've we actually created universities to be these um, research-driven institutions which survive on these grant dollars, these big these better big federal contracts. It ends up being directed research, though. It's not independent discovery. So if the sponsoring agencies want you to work on X, Y, or Z, you have to submit proposals saying that you're going to work on X, Y, Y, and Z. You can't say, I'm going to work on A, B, and C. And that's not good for science. It's not good for society. Obviously, we do need some directed research. Um, But the university system is basically, they've become directed research outlets, or academia has. And that's, you know, it comes at a consequence and it boils over into um, several key aspects of academia. The students aren't aren't getting the best professors or teachers that they should be getting because the professors are spending most of their time doing research. The scientists aren't doing their best scientific work because they're doing the work that they're being told is important instead of the discovery work, which leads to new new inventions, uh, new earth shattering discoveries in science. So, um, it's a big problem. It's the, it's the funding of academia. It's the funding of higher ed. It's the business model. Uh, it's it's not an easy thing to solve. I've actually thought about writing a book about that next uh, because it is such a, a, a troubling issue. I mean, actually, I figured it out. I think my first or the second year of my PhD student what it meant to actually be a scientist is that uh, you you figure out how to get the money and get the work done, and you sell it back to the stakeholders in a way that um, they feel is important because the work you're doing, it really isn't so important. I mean, what's most important is that you're bringing the money to your research institution and all the best scientists, you figure that out quickly.
1: Yeah. I've talked to a lot of people in academia and it just seems like a lot of stuff is just to get funding. And it seems like a lot of the work is skewed to the people that are funding those people. It really kind of sucks. Um, I don't, we're not, I'm not going to be able to fix that. I don't, I don't know when that will ever, I don't think, I don't think any
0: of us will be able to fix it. It'll take, it'll take sweeping policy changes. Uh, Really what the, the, it's a, it's a confluence of several factors. Um, The first is that state funding for academic institutions in the United States has dropped off dramatically. Uh, Federal funding for institutions has dropped off as well. They've increased the student loan program made it easier for students to, to get loans to go to school. Simultaneously, they then increased the amount of grants for directed research. If you used to be a professor 40 years ago, you used to have what's called hard money. You'd show up to work, you're an employee of the university, essentially a state employee in a lot of places. And then they gave you money every year to do research, whatever you thought was valuable. So they give you basically a blank check for 200, 250K a year and say, go do great things. Well, that, that's dried up. So now the expectation is like this. You show up to work as a, a professor and uh, they say, well, what, how many publications have you published? And you know they're checking the box on your publications. Okay, how many students are you mentoring in research? PhD students, master students, that kind of thing, or medical students potentially. Okay, check the box there. Teaching, oh, okay, you, you taught your courses. They don't really care. They might look at your student reviews. Most importantly, how much money did you bring into the institution? And uh, that's all they really care about, unfortunately. You know, as long as you're not a terrible person, you haven't upset anyone. If you're bringing the money in and, um, you know, you're checking the boxes, you get promoted, you get left alone.
1: And with a probably easier fix or an easier solution, we might actually get an answer to when do you expect? the origin or the actual yeah the code origin what do you expect that to actually do you think that's going to be something that's going to be eventually figured out do you think they're going to just going to give up on it? it's going to become a blemish in our history or is it going to be something that you're going to see with a position change or something happening
0: well I don't know if we'll ever figure it out I think if you look back at other famous laboratory leaks in history Typically what it takes is a insider to come out and be a whistleblower or, or a leak or provide information which ties it all together. Some of those people could be out there. They may be even detained by the Chinese. Uh, there were a few people that defected to the United States early on. We should check that out. So the US, they, the US government did pick up a couple people that were um, virology defectors from, from China and you can go read their stories. But it's been all pretty tight-lipped around these things, and I think I'd be happy if we got to a point where the United States could at least acknowledge that they helped contribute to this uh, terrible uh, disease emergence event. So then we can move past it, and then we can get the necessary rules and regulation in place to prevent it from happening again. I mean, I think that's a pretty reasonable thing to ask for. Um, there's there's a lot of different governments that have their hands on this, it's not just the Chinese in the United States. There are a lot of different players and, and academics and scientists that were all profiting from this. I think everyone's willing to, to move on from it and, and forgive people actually even, but we're not gonna get there until we can actually address what happened factually. And this will happen again. This, this will happen again, unless we actually have some regulation that's enforceable to prevent it from happening again. I mean, this, it's just the Wild West out there. I mean virology is the wild, wild west right now of science. Yeah.
1: Um, and where can people find your book? And do you have any other links you'd like to promote?
0: Yeah, sure. Um, well, I have a website, but it's not up and running yet. It's It looks uh looks like crap. But uh, you can get my book off uh, Simon and Schuster or Amazon.
1: I'll you make s- sure search
0: for there's another Andrew Huff out there who's a quite uh prolific writer, actually. So you have to make sure you add my middle initial. So Andrew G Huff, and it should pop up. And your Twitter and my Twitter yeah okay you can follow me on Twitter too my Twitter is AG Huff right. I'm bad at the social social media self promotion thing right, never...
1: you got all the info in your head you just <laughs> you just gotta get all right I'll
0: it doesn't come it doesn't come natural to me oh pro, plug this promo this oh, okay you don't
1: have a tattooed on your arm like most people I'm just kidding
0: actually on my thigh <laughs> and I'm not wearing pants right now so you can <laughs> so I can see it um, I'll make sure
1: I link it on the description, Andrew. It's been a pleasure. And thanks for listening to this episode of out of the blank podcast.